welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, where we will discuss high yield concepts for students on their anesthesia rotation. I am your host, Scott, the fourth year medical student. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast. And today we are in part three of three of the Applying to Anesthesia series. And today we're going to specifically talk about the interview season itself, as well as the whole match process in, you know, match week. So there's a good amount of stuff to talk about. So I'm going to go ahead and and give you an outline of uh, the topics discussed today. So first, we're going to give you the heads up on things to expect in the pre-interview season, like what kind of events. Next, we're going to talk about the things that program directors generally look for. Next is the letters of interest, and this is the one for asking for interviews. And we're going to give you some tips on scheduling and keeping track of your interviews. And I guess the bulk of it is going to be talking about the actual interview process and kind of walk you through what to expect and tips on doing well on those. And the latter half of this episode, we're going to talk about the letters of intent and interest for ranking purposes, followed by tips on creating your rank list. And lastly, we're going to end with talking about the general outline of Match Week and give you an idea of what to expect for soap. And as with the other episodes, just a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in this episode and the previous ones are mine alone. And this is my experience going through the MASH process this previous season. So your mileage may vary with the, the things I discuss here. So I highly encourage you to not only take my advice with a grain of salt, but try to gather as much information from different people as possible and to talk to your program advisor to kind of work with you to create a strategy that's personalized to your situation. Okay, well, all that said, let's go ahead and get started on the last episode of the Applying to Anesthesia series. Okay, so the first part we're going to talk about the pre-interview season. So these are kind of like the the months leading up to the ERAS deadline. So before then, a lot of the different programs are going to hold things they call the open houses. So they have a designated time in which people can go to attend their Zoom meetings, and they're just going to talk about why their program is awesome and why you should apply. It's good to to attend these things, especially if you're particularly interested in, in a program, because sometimes they take note of who attended their, their open houses, and it could give you an advantage in getting an interview. So it's not 100% guaranteed that you'll get an interview by attending these things, but it is worth it if you are super interested in a, a specific program. So it's not required, but, you know, one of those recommended things. And uh, one of the other good things to, or uh, one of the other good reasons to attend these things is they sometimes they will tell you any extra application requirements that they want. So for example, a lot of programs are like, we want you to write a paragraph about why you want to attend our program and put it into the the end 
of your personal statement. So unfortunately, this is not uniform across all programs. So you kind of have to figure out which ones require it. So this is just a good way to keep note of who wants extra stuff. So yeah, open houses, good idea to attend if you are interested in a specific program, but otherwise not necessarily important. And the next big event, I guess, that happens in the pre-interview season is the annual conference for the ASA. So generally this happens, like I believe, mid-October-ish. It, it could vary depending on the year. But this previous year, they had the conference in mid-October, and it was all virtual. So if you sign up for workshops or whatever, you can there's an opportunity for you to network with different programs if they, they're in attendance. Yeah, so possibly a, a good networking opportunity for you. And I believe the the conference, if you're an ASA member, like one of the student members, it is uh, free to sign up. So the only thing is some of the good workshops get fed up quickly. So once you know when the, uh, the registration opens, you just try to sign up as quick as you can so you can get the, the more desirable workshops. Okay, now we're going to move into the actual interview season. So this is basically after you submit your, your application through ERAS and you're kind of just playing the, the waiting game. So I think it'd be helpful to kind of go over what program directors generally look for when selecting applicants to, to interview. And for this, I'm going to use the 2020 Program Director Survey, which was posted by the NRMP. And I guess before I continue on, I just wanted to point out that the sample size is only 25 out of a total of like 146 programs. So the response rate isn't that great. So yeah, I guess this is more of like a grain of salt kind of thing, but I feel like it does give you a good idea of how the programs kind of screen out applicants and whatnot to select for interviews. So the top five, according to this program director survey from most important to least is one is the, the USMLE step one exams. Two is the medical student performance evaluation or MSPE. Three is the USMLE step two CK. Four is the class ranking. And five is the leadership qualities. So this might change up a little bit in the near future, specifically regarding the, the USMLE Step 1, since it's going to pass-fail, most likely that metric is going to be replaced by Step 2 CK. So that's probably going to be more important in the future. Um, but as of last year, 2020, this is the things that PDs tend to, to value. Okay, so other than the things that we just discussed, there are other different parameters that programs use to screen out applicants first obviously is you know we talked about the board scores but other things are geographic location and degree type if you're outside of that program's geographic location and you don't provide any sort of evidence or anything to suggest your strong desire to go to that location they would be less likely to give you an interview as opposed to someone who was born and raised in that location and shows a good track record of trying to stay there. So for example, if you're from 
the West Coast or something and you want to go to the Midwest or East Coast without ever actually being there, uh, that could raise a few like eyebrows from the program point of view. Okay, and the next is a degree type. So we kind of alluded to this in the previous episode where there's good amount of evidence that there's a biases against students that have like a DO degree or they have like a IMG status, like the IMG is International Medical Graduates, as opposed to USMDs. So this is important to know because you want to be aware of who the program took in the past because that gives you an idea of who they'll take in the the future, right? So if a program has only taken USMDs for the for the past I don't know twenty years or something, and there was no other degree type, there's less likely chance that they're going to take a deal. So it's not set in stone. Because there's there's always ways you're able to kind of get your foot in the door either through away rotations or networking, that kind of thing. But then it's good to set your expectations accordingly because if it didn't happen before, chances are it's not going to happen in the future. But if, you know, if it's like a program you really want to go to, by all means, go for it. But um, just try to manage your expectations. So, yeah. Basically, those are the factors that the PDs use to select who to interview. Mainly, try to do your best on your board exams and your best on your clerkships or whatever because that shows up on your MSPE. And uh, yeah, those are the those factors for interview. But now we'll move on to factors that PDs look into for ranking. And basically, it comes down to how well you interview. So. Going for the top five from most important to least, one is interpersonal skills, two is interactions with faculty during the interview, three is the MSPE, four is the interaction with house staff during the interview, and five is feedback from current residents. So we'll talk about that a little bit more during that section, but as you can see, the way programs decide who or where you fall on the rank list really determines on how well your interview and how nice you are to everyone. So yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more when it later on in this episode. But for now, just know, try to be nice to everyone. That's that's the goal. Great. So the next thing is letters of interest. And this is letters of interest for asking for interviews. And the purpose of this is to send an email to the program to let them know that you're very interested in attending their, their residency and you would appreciate the opportunity to interview with them. So first question is, when should you send it? Generally, it's a good idea to do it after you submit your application. Just that way they would have the application on hand. So they're able to uh, pull your application up and look at it after they, they see your, your letter of interest. And for me, I end up sending my very first ones about two to three weeks into the season, as in like two to three weeks after submitting the the application. And then as the season started rolling, I sent uh, more letters of interest. So, but then I sent Within the, the first two, three weeks, I, I sent the letters to my my top 
choice programs, basically. And this is a note for couple smashing. Uh, I did not couple smash, but I've heard this tip from my friends that did. But basically, if if your partner got an interview at one place, but you did not, it's a really good idea to communicate with a program to try to ask for an interview for your partner. Because sometimes the program directors are able to talk to each other and kind of pull strings to to get your your partner interview. So again, I it, I didn't do that, but uh, I heard some pretty good success stories about this for those who did couple smash. So yeah, definitely do that. Okay, next question is who should you send the letters of interest to? Generally, what I did was I went off of what was posted in the ERAS information page so like each program you're able to pull up information about uh you know the contact info so i sent it to whatever was posted there but i always made sure to cc the program coordinator because generally speaking they're the ones that's filtered through all the hundreds and thousands of emails and send it to the program director to read anyways so it's a good idea to always be in contact with the program coordinator. And lastly, the meat of this, like what to actually include in the letter of interest. So the general format is you can include your AMC ID number. Next, you're going to introduce yourself and you're going to give two to three sentences of why you're interested in the program and a few other sentences on why you think you're a good fit. And for sure, explain if you have any connections to the program. For example, if you have family in the area and you would like to be near them if, if you want or if possible. And lastly, you conclude by saying you would appreciate a thorough review of the application and you for sure, you, you thank them for, for their time for reading it. And if you're interested in a template that I used during my interview season, I included that in the show notes so go ahead and take a look if you want an idea of how to write it and the last tip for these lives of interest is if you get an interview at an advanced program but you didn't get an interview for the prelim or transitional year program that's at the same institution it's a good idea to shoot an email to the prelim or ty program coordinator to let them know that you interviewed with their advanced anesthesia and would appreciate interview with their prelim TY. Uh, I had some decent success with this, so it's not like a 100% thing. It's always a good idea because for me, I really did not like to move. I hate moving. So I, if I wanted to kind of make sure I had my prelims as close to the advanced as possible. So yeah, that's just something to consider when you're going through this process. Great. So the next part is scheduling your interviews. So the way it works now is that you will get an email to notify you that you got an interview invite. So every time you see you got an email from no reply AMC, that you should probably drop everything you're doing and check to see if that's an interview invite because Usually, these run by a first-come, first-served basis, and a lot of times, programs would send more interview invites than there are interview spots. So as you can imagine, they get filled up real quick. 
So as soon as you see the the email about it, try to excuse yourself so you can fill or you so you can sign up for an interview spot. But obviously, if you're driving or something, pull over to somewhere that's that's safe and then sign up for it. Yeah, unfortunately, it it kind of sucks, especially if say you're in the middle of a surgery or something, and you can't you know check your phone. But yeah, so that kind of brings up the next point. So if you're on a rotation or something, not only should you have your like your phone or your computer on hand so you can check your emails, but it's a really good idea to let your attendings and residents or whoever you're working with know that you will be checking it for interviews. That way you don't seem like you're disinterested or rude by checking your phone a lot because this is super important. You you want to be on top of it, right? And most of the time, the the attendings and residents will be accommodating for this because they went through the process and they, they know how stressful it is. So just make sure you communicate with the people you work with. And I guess regarding the timing of these emails, most of the time they occur on weekday mornings, but on some rare occasions, they could send it at night during the weekend. So try to expect those emails in the morning, but be prepared to kind of like jump on it at any hour of the day, basically. So when you get an interview invite, there's... In my experience, two, one of two ways you can do it. So one, you can schedule the interview directly through ERAS. So you log into your portal and there's an interview tab. And then you basically choose whatever's available date is and you just click on it and it schedules for you. And the other one is through a service called Thalamus. And you're most likely going to have to create an account with them before being able to schedule stuff. But once you do, it's basically the same thing as the ERAS thing where you choose whatever available date and you you uh, book it through the website. Canceling the interviews is a slightly different story. For ERAS, you're able to cancel the interview through the ERAS portal. Uh, but when you do, just send the an email to the program coordinator. Just let them know that you canceled it more as a professional courtesy than anything. But And for Thalamus, there's, to my knowledge, no actual way to cancel interviews on their platform. So you're going to have to contact the program coordinator anyways. Before I continue on any further, I want to do a quick sidebar. So as you might have heard before, this entire process is very stressful, especially if you're not getting interviews. So like you're, you're waiting all morning, all day for an invite but it never comes it really eats eats at you and it sucks like i've I've been there and lots of uh, imposter syndrome feelings of inadequacy all around so i know it's very it's easier said than done but try to do whatever you can to take care of your mental health because this is a pretty long and drawn out process and being in a state of constant stress is is no bueno, basically. So whether it is meditation, talking to friends, working out, do whatever it takes to kind of take care of yourself. Walk the dog. That's that's what I did because, yeah, it is super stressful. And if knock on wood, 
you don't get as many interviews that that you were expecting. Just know you're not the only one in that situation because I I've been there, and I feel for you, but you got this. Okay, so take care of yourself during this this process as best you can. Okay, sidebar over. Now let's go to the next topic of how do you keep track of all your interviews because there's lots of things to keep track of, right? So you have not only the dates, but the times that you should be there. And then you have to account for time zones. So that's a unique thing to this COVID era interview season. So there's lots of different ways you can organize yourself. So I'll just give you the method that I use and hopefully it gives you an idea to manage your your own schedule. Okay, so basically throughout med school, I lived and died by Outlook. So even if I was scheduling an outing with friends, I put it into my Outlook calendar and then I I went off of that because I'm the type of person that forgets stuff unless I write it down. So this is uh, was a no-brainer for me to use Outlook for keep track of the interview schedule. So when I got an email from the program that says I got an interview, I went to Outlook and created an appointment in the calendar section. And first things first, I copied and pasted the contents of that email uh, into that new appointment. So for example, the date, time, Zoom link, or Thalamus link, that whatever to use into that, that new appointment. And then for setting the date and time, I referenced what was in that email and put it exactly as it is in the date and time section. So for example, if I got an interview at a program 10 o'clock Eastern time, even if I wasn't in in Eastern time zone, I put Eastern in that date creation. Because the cool thing about Outlook is that it automatically adjusts for your time zone. When it comes time to do the actual interview, all I had to do was was click on the appointment thing. And then I had all the information I needed for that interview, like, for example, the Zoom link and just click it there. So it was nice to have everything in in one place. So I didn't have to, like, control F through all of the the emails that I, that I get. So it's always nice when you keep things nice and organized and simple. But you know, that's just what I did. And also I kept another table in OneNote and it, it was just like a quick reference thing. So I put in like the program name, date, time, just so like if I'm scheduling anything I look through the, the, that table to quickly see if I have any uh, appointments, like conflicting appointments. So yeah, that's what I did. And again, do whatever works for you. A lot of my friends, they like to use a paper calendar. I hate having, you know, paper things. So I, I use Outlook because that's something I was uh, familiar with. Okay, so that's what I did. And hopefully it, it helps you. But if not, uh, yeah, power to you. Great. So next thing to talk about is how many interviews to actually go on. And this is a very tricky question given the COVID situation, because considering the fact that nobody is traveling for interview season, 
It means that you're able to divert more resources to drop more applications and to keep more of those interviews, even if they're back to back. Because in the past, it's kind of hard to have back to back interviews, especially if if it's in different parts of the country. It's like it's difficult to be in Florida and on a Thursday and go all the way up to Washington State on a Friday. So it's just not feasible when you have to travel. But with the whole Zoom interviews, that eliminates that problem altogether. So one thing that was expected and kind of happened was that people would be holding on to a lot of interviews and there would be very little movement. There's like no trickle interview invites, which is unfortunate to like average to below average applicants. And unfortunately, at the time of recording this and writing up the show notes, it does not look like they're actually going to do anything to fix this problem, which is really unfortunate, but I guess it is what it is. So the the strategy then becomes try to keep as many interviews as you can to maximize your chance of matching, but also be cognizant of other applicants and try not to hold on to an absurd amount of interviews. And it goes back to the question, well, how much is enough and how much is too much? I guess a good way to kind of plan this out is to go off the charting outcome data for 2020 that gives you almost a 100% chance of matching in the, in, in the past. So this will vary between the degree types. So for USMDs, 15 interviews seems to be the threshold where you get to almost 100% chance of matching. For USDOs, it's 16 to 17 interviews. And for IMGs, it's about 18 to 20 interviews. So once you, you hit around that number, consider dropping interviews at places you really don't want to actually go to. But, and again, I fully understand that you have to look after yourself first. So do what you think is is good for you and what your advisors think you should do. But if you can, try to think of your your fellow applicants because this was a relatively rough season. Okay, great. So let's pretend that you ended up getting an interview invite, you scheduled an interview, and you make it up to the day before your interview. So generally speaking, before the interviews, there's always these, or there's usually these pre-interview dinners. So before COVID, it was a time for you to meet up with the residents at a restaurant or whatever to have a candid conversation about their thoughts on the program over a meal. But unfortunately with COVID, this is not possible. So to replace that, they had basically another meet and greet before the interviews in which you can kind of ask questions to the the residents over a Zoom format. And honestly, it's not too bad. It, it could get a little awkward, especially at the beginning of the interview season. Like no one knew what was going on. So it was like new territory for everyone. But I feel like you're still able to more or less get the information that you want. So asking the resident if they they like it at their program, if, whether they feel like they're respected, 
and their opinions are valued, that kind of stuff, you're able to still acquire from these uh, meet and greets. But you're also going to have to do some some detective work as well to kind of read the the way they respond to questions because you know things like if they're really hesitant to to say they like their program or they kind of go in a roundabout way to answering your question so that could be a sign that you know they they don't really like it as much so you're still going to have to use your uh, detective and people skills or people reading skills during these zoom meetings and it's a little bit hard because you can't really see them up close but you know just try your best now we're going to move on to actually talking about the interviews themselves and we're going to go over things like the the equipment setup that you can use dress code how you should answer questions the different questions to ask uh, residents and faculty and of course questions to ask the program director so the first thing is going to talk about the equipment. So generally speaking, honestly, if your computer already has a webcam and a, a microphone, it's probably good enough to use during an interview. So what I recommend is just test it with a friend or whoever beforehand and kind of make a decision like, is this good enough? Are they able to see me clearly? And are they able to, to hear me clearly? Because at the end of the day, what really matters is how you interview, how well you portray yourself versus if you look like you have like a 1080 H HD, you know, HP resolution and like your, your audio is as crisp as, I don't know, Arctic air. I don't know. Um, so because like even if you have awesome equipment, if you suck at interviewing, it's not going to really compensate for anything. Okay. So. Do what you're comfortable with doing, basically. And honestly, some of the ways to make yourself look good on webcam is highly dependent on your lighting situation. Like your lighting situation, the, the background you choose, where you place your, your webcam. So there's a good video that I posted in my show notes that goes over these little details. But if anything, just look up on YouTube, like how to look good on Zoom tutorial or something like that. And usually it gives you some pretty good tips. That way you can save money if you can. And it's more like practical ways to make yourself look good. With that said, uh, let's talk about equipment right now. So first is the webcam. So as I said, if you have an onboard webcam for your laptop or whatever, that, that should be good. But if you decide to upgrade, you have a few different options. So one is buy an external webcam. So very popular brands include the Logitech external webcams, and they're usually very easy to set up to. All you have to do is plug it into your USB port and like mount it on your laptop or monitor or whatever. And it's just plug and go. So you don't have to really download any drivers or anything. It does it automatically. So it's a pretty good and cheap-ish way to, to do it. And most of these external webcams also have a, a microphone built into it as well. So if you're able to get a two-in-one, that's fantastic. Next option is if you're a photographer already, uh, you can use your, your own camera as a webcam. For example, cameras like DSLRs. I know for sure that 
you have a Canon camera, you're able to download the webcam driver to basically connect your, your camera to your computer and then use that as a webcam. Uh, for example, I usually shoot with a Canon Rebel T5 and then the, the newest version of that software allows me to use it as a webcam if I desired. I ended up deciding against it because it made me look too crisp and the detail was too good. And I was like, oh man, I kind of look ugly. <laughs> so I, I decided to not use my, my camera for, for that purpose. But if you have it and it's something that you can just use without having to pay extra money for anything else. Lastly, an option is you can use your phone as a webcam. And this is not like downloading the Zoom app on your thing in an interview like that. It's more of if you download an app, you're able to connect your your phone to your computer and use your phone as like an external webcam. So the app I used for my Android phone was was called Droid Cam. So it, it allowed me to control my my phone phone's camera as as a webcam. So that's an option if you don't want to like really pay for any other webcam. And chances are you already have a phone with a decent camera, so it's like a why not situation. Just wanted to bring that up just in case, uh, just so you have uh, different options. Okay, next, we're going to talk about audio equipment. So first thing is the stuff you use to listen to your interviewers. In my opinion, I went for wireless earbuds. It just looks a little bit better that way so there's no like distracting wires going anywhere but i mean if the only thing you have is wired earbuds that's that's totally fine it's just my personal preference i like to keep it nice and clean so there's no distraction when people are looking at me through the webcam and i would generally avoid using over ears headphones because it's it's huge and it's it could be distracting and it looks kind of weird if you're in your suit and tie and that kind of stuff too. But that's just my preferences and point of view. So whatever works for you, but I, I would recommend using a wireless earbud if you have it. Next component of audio is the microphone. So as I said earlier, generally speaking, the onboard microphone should be fine, but it the quality might not be great. And also, as I mentioned earlier, if you buy an external webcam, sometimes they include a microphone in it as well. So that's something to look into. Uh, what I end up doing is I bought a lapel microphone that you can just plug it into the USB port because the, the lapel mic is one of those things where you can just clip onto your tie or whatever. And then it provides better audio quality than the onboard microphone most of the time. So that's something to, to consider if you want. I got mine for like 15, 20 bucks or something like that. And it was actually what I used to record the first 20 something episodes of this podcast. So it turned out to be okay. Use it for multiple purposes, both for the podcast as well as the interviews. And I guess lastly, if you end up deciding to buy a bigger microphone, like one of those condenser mics, like something that I'm actually using right now. The issue is it could be distracting, especially if it's uh, on the screen with you. So if 
you have the the big microphone you have like the boom arm going across the screen and you have the pop filter and everything like it looks kind of cool like you you're an official podcaster kind of setup but then for interview purposes it's it's kind of distracting so i would advise against it unless you're able to get good audio quality without the mic in on screen so yeah like basically the entire idea is to remove any distractions from your presentation so then they can like pay attention to you and what you're talking about because if they're looking at you and they're distracted by this giant microphone or like the the giant headphone that's on on your your head then they're not going to really pay attention to what you're saying and that's obviously not a great thing so whatever you do to decide try to make sure it's not distracting and that all the attentions can be on you and your answers to your interview questions I guess the last part for equipment is your internet. So you obviously want to have like a reliable source if possible, like especially if you're able to attach your your computer or laptop to an Ethernet cable to have more secure internet source, that's ideal. But even then, sometimes there's feces hits the fan. Okay, so always have a sort of contingency plan in case things go wrong with uh, any of your technology. So possible backup plans is to have the phone of the program coordinator on hand or even if you have the Zoom app downloaded on your phone. So try to think of ways to kind of prepare yourself in case things don't go as as you want. Okay, moving on from equipment, uh, we're going to talk about the actual setup. So first thing is your webcam placement. A good thing to keep in mind is try to keep the camera at eye level if possible because by doing so not only does it help generate a sort of or help simulate the eye contact in a normal conversation but also make you look a little bit better because if you have the camera too low it's looking up at you and then it generally speaking it's less flattering so like it can make it look like you have a, a double chin or it you like have lots of shadows on your eyes, that kind of thing. And like if you have the angle too high, like it's looking down at you, it can make look make it look like your head is huge and your rest of the body is small. So when you put it at eye level, it kinda removes any sort of distortion. If you have like an external webcam, you can mount it on a tripod or something and adjust it that way. Or if you're using the, the laptop, you can just put like a bunch of shoe boxes underneath to raise the, the height of the webcam. Whatever it is, just try to make it as eye level as possible. Next part for setup is the lighting. And honestly, I think you already have the best kind of lighting possible in your home or apartment or wherever you're staying. And it's basically the window. Because when light comes through the window, it kind of acts as a, a light box in which it diffuses light. So then it usually gives like a nice even lighting on your face. So if you so you have your setup in a way that you're looking out the window and a camera is like looking at you, then you're taking advantage of like a natural light source. That being said, never have your your back to the window or never have like a bigger a brighter light source behind you 
because what happens is it gets underexposed so you just turn to a silhouette and then the 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 camera like kind of focuses on the the light source so when you can have you looking out the window and a camera looking at you and again if that didn't make any sense just uh go ahead and take a look at the show notes and look at the the youtube link or go on youtube and type in webcam lighting tips or uh, how to look good on, on zoom and that that will go over that setup for you other options for lighting if you don't want to use a, the window or like it's just not possible given like your living situation you can try other cheap ideas like using any sort of lamps that you have on hand but when if you do this i would highly recommend that they all have the same type of light bulb or like the the same type of temperature because for example the tungsten light bulbs they have like a very orange hue versus leds which is like a light kind of cooler temperature so you want to have all that to be the same because it looks weird if you have the different types of temperature on your face it just doesn't look right and lastly like a very popular option is using a ring light so if you do purchase a ring light I would highly recommend that you do not use glasses for this because one of the things is you can see the reflections off your glasses. So you see the ring light in in the reflection and it looks weird and it's kind of distracting. So if you can, avoid wearing your glasses during the, the encounter. But if you need the glasses to see and if you still want to use ring light, Try your best to play with the angle in which the the light's hitting your glasses and your webcam and whatnot. So you might be able to come up with a situation in which there's no reflection. So think about when you took physics, right? Like the whole angle incidence and angle reflection, that that kind of idea. So just play around with it until it it works out. Like the advantage of using ring light is that's probably the only lighting source you really need because it gives nice even... uh, lighting but yeah like the only big issue is it it looks weird if you can see it through reflection okay last part of setup is the background the safest bet for this is to use a blank wall because like if your background has too much stuff in the back in 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 view it could be very distracting again you want all the attention to be on you and your responses and not on your room because sometimes people are like, oh, yeah, daydreaming and they, they look at the, the books on, on your bookshelf or, you know, whatever sculpture you have in the background. So try to keep it simple. Uh, that's what I went for. Um, but if you have like a small plant or something or like a nice looking room divider, that's totally fine. But again, try to keep it as simple as you can and not too distracting or cluttered. Okay, now that we talked about the actual equipment and setup and whatnot, now we're going to talk about the actual interview itself. So first, dress code. Definitely wear the professional attire. So like for guys, you have the the button down, you have the tie, blazer over the top. And although it's technically not in view, wear your pants just in case. Because you don't want a situation where, like, you know, your webcam falls or you actually stand up or something and you're not wearing pants. That just, that's not a good look. <laughs> so wear your pants just in case. Uh, unfortunately, I don't really know what uh, the women wear. So whatever y'all use for, uh, you know, professional purposes, that should be fine. 
Now, giving you, I'll give you a few tips on answering interview questions. And the first thing is to practice. Yeah, even if you feel like you are solid at interviews, you're very personable, very charismatic, it's always a good idea to at least practice once or twice with friends, faculty, whoever you trust in, because it's inevitable that you're a little rusty because like it's been about four years since you've done an interview for like med school or whatever. So then it's just something to get you back into the groove and trying to look good when you're talking to people for interviews. So especially practice to behavioral type questions because they're standard interview questions and it comes up in every single one. So it's like whether it be anesthesia, prelim interviews, transitional year, like it, it always shows up. So so definitely practice behavioral questions and know how you're going to answer all of them. Like don't try not to be a scripted response as in like it is it's obvious that you're reading off a list or something like that but know how you're going to respond to these questions and it would help you a lot in the down the line okay so you can always google these kind of behavioral questions but for completeness i'll give you examples of the type of behavioral questions that they ask so first is tell me about yourself Second is, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Third, tell me about a time you worked with someone you didn't get along well with and how did you handle that situation? Or if it's, tell me about a failure and how you handled it. And fifth, what are you most proud of? So again, this is not an exhaustive list, but it gives you an idea of the basic kind of questions that they'll ask you. And you want to be able to answer it without stumbling all over the place, especially the tell me about yourself question. Aside from the behavioral stuff, the best way you can prepare for an interview is to know your application front and back. Anything you put into the application is fair game for questions. So the next tip is when you're answering the questions, use stories to demonstrate your character traits. People love to hear stories. It's like in, in general. So hearing it in an interview setting is no different because it keeps it, uh, the person engaged. It makes it more interesting and it gives you or it gives the and it gives them a clear example of how you portray or how you embody a specific character trait. So yeah, you can say I'm hardworking. I am dedicated. I love taking care of people. But if you don't follow up with anything, they're like, okay, yeah, cool story, bro. But it wasn't a story. <laughs> so when you answer the question, say like, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Or like, what are your strengths? You can talk about you are a huge team player and you go in to talk about how on your anesthesia rotation, like you helped out to resuscitate the patient you got the materials you know you got them iv bags you, you kind of you know you did something to help contribute to patient care so that was a bad example but the idea is try to answer these questions with a story it would make it more memorable especially if it's a pretty interesting story um, but it also gives a solid 
evidence for what you're trying to, to claim. And lastly, this tip is going to take a little bit of practice, but it's to look at your webcam while you're answering questions because it's more natural for you to look at your screen, to look at the actual interviewer when you're talking because that's how we're built. That's how we do the eye contact thing. But for webcam interviews, your best bet is to take a look at the webcam itself because your interviewer is seeing what the webcam is looking at. So when you actually look at the webcam, it's going to show up on the interviewer's screen and it's going to make to simulate the eye contact as, as best as possible. So it's going to take a little bit of practice with that. So just try to, it's not like a really big thing, but if you're able to do it, that'd be fantastic. Um, otherwise, a cool trick is if you push the webcam far away from, from you enough, you kind of can just look straight ahead and then it makes it look like you're looking at the, the webcam. So play around with it, but if if not, just, just try to practice. Okay, so at the end of every single interview encounter, they're always going to ask, do you have any questions for me? And rule of thumb is always have something to ask because it doesn't look good when they ask you if you have any questions and you're like, mm, nope, I'm good, dude. So um, what I did was I I kept a, a, a list of questions I asked pretty much every uh, resident or any faculty member. And I asked the same thing for every single interview. And plus, since I have a list, I don't have to memorize the, the questions and less work for, for you, the better in my opinion. So the different questions kind of depends on who you're talking to. And there's like extensive lists online, but I'll give you like a few examples of what to ask for each type of person. So for residents, good questions to ask is what is your general opinion of the program? Are you happy training here? It's like, what's the relationship like with the attendings and faculty and support staff? What's a typical day like? And what are things that you like to do or eat in around that area? So basically, when you talk to residents, it's more of kind of gauge quality of life. Like, are they miserable there? Like, do they work a lot? And, and like, is there actually anything you want to do in that area in terms of like relaxation, hobbies, that kind of thing. So that's the kind of questions you should ask for residents. For a program director and faculty members, it's a little bit more on the business side, as you can imagine. So things like asking about research opportunities, didactic schedule, strengths, weaknesses of the program, the type of cases they, they get. One ex- question I, I like to ask is, like, can you give me an example in which your program was responsive to the residents? Because that forces the the interviewer to not only show that they're responsive to residents, but they gave a solid example. So it's more credible if they're to come up with something as opposed to like, yes, we, we are so responsive. Yeah, and uh, lastly, a, a really fun question I, I like to ask the program directors at the end of the interview is like, if you can choose one thing about your program, like what are you most proud of and 
a good sign is if when their their eyes light up and they're super excited to talk about something, like that's where you know that program director is like really invested in in the program because it's like their baby, right? And they're really proud of it and they would like to talk about various aspects of it. And it's even better when they're like, oh gosh, I can only choose one. So yeah, so those are kind of like signs you you can read to determine if a program is like really invested in resident education or not. So yeah, a tip I would uh, suggest when you're asking these questions is kind of try to take notes as you're answering the, the questions because it's really easy to forget what they say like a month uh, after an interview. And plus, if you're a person like me, I kind of block out traumatic experiences like interviews or exams or whatever, like right afterwards. So I don't really remember what happened. So when you're writing a thank you letter, having your notes uh, available would make things a lot easier. And we'll talk about post-interview communication later. Okay, so that kind of concludes the what to do and expect for the interview portion, like the actual interview itself. So next topic is to to discuss what should you look for in residency programs. And of course, this is going to be very dependent on what you value and what your interests are. But for the sake of this podcast, I'll give you ideas of what to think about, and then you can kind of figure out what's important to you as you go along. So examples of things that what you value is the geography. Like for example, if you want to be on a specific location because it's close to family, that kind of thing. Two is the amount of hours the residents work, the cost schedule, that kind of thing. It's especially important for if you have a spouse because I hear, like I don't have a spouse myself, but I hear from people who do, like your life is going to be good or bad depending on whether or not your spouse is okay with your call schedule. So I'm not sure it's, it's always possible to get around this, but it's definitely something to uh, consult with your, your spouse or significant other. Another things include like research opportunities where previous residents matched for fellowship. And lastly, Things like your the fit of the program, the gut feelings, and the vibes that you got during the interview, those are pretty important to to consider as well, even if it's not like a objective measure. Program related things you could kind of take a look at is what types of patients they usually get. Generally speaking, for training purposes, you kind of want to have patients that are ASA threes and above, just so you know how to manage the the sick patients. You can ask about the types of procedures that the the residents get to work on, like the different cases that they get to work on. So something I've heard from various attendings is a good sign is if you're able to work directly in liver transplants. Because to my knowledge, that's basically the mother of all anesthesia cases. And it, so if you're able to handle handle a liver transplant, you can handle anything. Or so that's what I've heard. I, I've, I've never been on that case before. So just disseminating what I know. Um, so the yeah, the di- different cases that you can get. Other things include the amount of autonom- autonomy you're allowed, the regional anesthesia experience, and the structure. So 
if there are any CRNAs involved with that program, like, do you relieve the CRNAs or do they relieve you? Like how that system works. And lastly, something to keep in mind is the quality of life of the residents in that program. So easy question. Do you feel like the residents are happy? Think about the debt the different benefits that could be provided. So food, housing, childcare, anything that you feel like is super important to you. And yeah, so that's a lot of stuff. So a good idea is try to keep track of those details as you go along. So one thing I did was to keep a, a notebook of, of what I did or of the, the various aspects. Some people like to keep spreadsheets. Basically, go whatever floats your boat. Great. Next portion is post-interview communication. So stuff you do to communicate with the the program after you interview. And the ultimate rule that you should pay attention to is do not trust what anyone tells you after your interview, especially if they say we are going to rank you highly or you're going to rank you to match. Don't, don't trust them unless you actually match there. Because the programs are just like us. We're they're they're all playing the game. So they're trying to fill their spots and for you you're trying to match somewhere. Right. So even if they, they say they'll rank you highly, do not drop any other programs on your list because they 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 said they promised you a spot. Don't trust them unless you actually match there and in the end. Okay, so the last thing you want is to shoot yourself in the back because someone promised you something very cynical but in the end it's all to protect yourself that out of the way let's talk about thank you letters so they're not exactly necessary and some programs they actually discourage sending any sort of post-interview communication but if they allow it it's more of a professional courtesy so these letters are generally very short about three to five sentences and try not to overthink it. Like for me, I kind of spent too much time on it the the first few interviews and it kind of got absurd. So basically keep it short and sweet and don't expect to get a response back. Sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. So general format for this, just include your AMC ID as per any sort of uh, communication and you uh, write down, you thank them for interviewing you on whatever date it was. Talk about what you enjoyed about the program and something specific that you guys talked about. And hope you have a great day. That's basically it. And again, don't overthink it. Just do it more out of a professional courtesy. And like, if you don't send it, that's no problem at all. People match fine without sending thank you letters or any sort of post-interview things. So if you don't do it, that's totally fine. It's more like up to your personal preference. Okay, the next thing is for post-interview communication is letters of intent and interest regarding ranking purposes. So for letter of intent, this is usually sent towards the end of interview season, like when you're done with all your interviews, about a month or so before the the rankless submission deadline. And basically, the purpose of the letter of intent is to let a program know that you're going to be ranking their program as your number one choice. 
And the important thing is to only send one letter of intent. Only send one pro- uh, letter that says you're going to rank them number one because it looks bad if you tell a program that you're ranking them number one but did not. So if they rank you to match and you don't match there, it's going to look pretty bad. So what everyone's saying is anesthesia is a small world. So one ripple like that can kind of bite you in the butt later on in the road. So it's not really worth it professionally down the line. So it's better to not send it than to lie about that. Okay. So if you only send, or if you do plan on sending a letter of intent, that's, that is the letter that you're saying you're ranking them number one, only send one of those. So more or less, it's the same format as the letter letter of interest when you ask for interviews, but it's just a little bit longer. So again, just for completeness, I'll, I'll tell you what to include. It's one, the AMC ID number, the date you interviewed, few reasons why you're very interested in the program, four, what you can offer to the program and why you're a great fit. And after that, you thank them for the time and you know, say, I hope to join you in July for, for residency. So that was the letter of intent. Next is the letter of interest again, but this time is for ranking purposes. So the main problem with sending these is that when you say you're ranking a program highly, it means that they're not your number one choice. So this being said, it it's not really going to change your position on a rank list if, if you're not explicitly saying you're the number one choice like maybe if you're interviewing at a very small program that would influence the program director but overall it does not seem like letters of interest really really do anything but if it makes you feel like you did everything you could absolutely do to maximize your chance of matching by all means go for it but yeah basically the only difference between the letter of interest and letter of intent is letter of interest you're saying you're ranking a program highly or like you're ranking a program in your top three as opposed to saying that you're ranking on number one. And that's the main difference. Otherwise, the format and, and things to include are exactly the same. All right. So now we're going to talk about the creating your rank order list. So this is assuming you went through the process of applying, you did your interviews, you attended them on time and because you're able to keep track of the time zones, you interviewed well, you sent the post-interview communication if you wanted to, and now it's towards the end of the season and you're now you're just creating your rank list. So first things first, you submit your rank order list and to the NRMP, which is the National Resident Matching Program. And they're the ones that actually run the match process. And this is not through ERAS. So just to make sure that's clear in your mind. And the ultimate advice you get for creating your rank list is to rank in order of true preference. Do not try to game the system by putting safety programs above others. Because the way that the algorithm works, it goes by your preferences. So only person you're 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 gaming by tr- uh, ranking safety programs above like what you actually want to go to is yourself. 
So like things to consider when creating your rank list include things like geography, family, prestige, training opportunities, fellowship matches. So for sure, do what or rank, create your rank list in order of programs you actually want to attend and things you care about because that's how the algorithm works. And I won't go into too deeply of how the, the the math works there. I put a link in the show notes and you can just Google it on the NRMP website. But yeah, wanted to really stress this point. Rank in order of true preference. Don't try to game a system because you will game yourself. Okay, and this next part is kind of unique for specialties like anesthesia because there's different types of programs, right? So there's categorical programs and the advanced ones. So first of all, if you get an interview invite from an institution that has both categorical and advanced, those count as two separate ranks. So even if it's the same institution, those count as two. So for categorical programs, it's relatively straightforward. You just add it to your main rank order list and adjust the position as you see fit, and basically you're done. But for advanced programs, it's a little bit more complicated because you not only rank the advanced programs, but you have to assign a separate supplemental list for your prelim and TY programs. So if you interviewed at a different prelim and TY programs, you create a separate list in order of true preference again, and then you assign it to the advanced one. To my knowledge, you can create as many supplemental lists as possible, but you can only assign one list to one advanced program. Yeah, so for the sake of time, I will not give an example of, of this. Uh, if you like to take a look at the show notes, I'll give you an example of how this would uh, look like when you're ranking categorical advance and the supplemental list for your intern years. But one thing to consider is if you're using the intern year only programs as a backup, as in if you don't match it in any of the other programs, you're going to match to just the one year thing and reapply it the following season, is you have to put the prelim programs on your main rank order list. So for example, if you have a rank list of anesthesia programs that goes up to 10 and you want to rank the prelim programs as your backup, you can rank them at at the bottom of your list. So at 11, 12, 13, whatever. But make sure if you're using it as a backup to rank it on your main rank list. Because if you just list it on your supplementals, it's not going to be included when it runs the, the, the algorithm. Things like couples matching, it gets a little bit more complicated and because you're going to have to go through different permutations of matching places. So ideally, the, the idea is try to match in the same program or same geographical location, but you have to think about different combinations in which like one partner would match one part of the country and the other partner matches on the other, or like if one partner matches and the other does not. So there's different permutations of this. And I would encourage you to kind of look look this up and other sources because I can't give you uh, much information on couples matching, but that's the general idea for that. So the last super important thing to, to note is when you're ready to submit your rank list, 
It's like you not only had to save the, the list, but you had to make sure you hit the button that says certify because saving your list is not the same thing as certifying. Certifying means that you are locking it in and this is this the, the rank list that's going to go through the algorithm. But an important thing to note is you can readjust and certify your list as many times as you want before the deadline. So just make sure when you do rearrange stuff to hit certify again and you'll get like an email um, confirmation that it's gone through. And yeah, so this really good idea is to try to certify your list at least two days before the deadline because you don't want the, the system crashing beforehand and you didn't submit the rank list because you worked really hard to get to this point. You don't want to mess up at the very end. So make sure you certify. If you made it this far in this episode, I thank you profusely. Uh, this is probably the longest episode I, I've ever recorded. So awesome. And it's kind of fitting because the next topic is match week. You worked super hard to get to this point and it all comes down to this one week. So the general idea of match week is on the Monday, you get an email for the NRMP to tell you the match results. And on Friday, it tells you where you matched. And from there, hopefully you got good news on Monday that you fully matched and all you have to do is kind of just wait until Friday to receive results. The unfortunate scenario is if you did not match, you have to go through a process called SOAP, which is the Supplemental Offer of Applicant Program or something like that. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Or sorry if this is a little bit triggering to, to think about not matching, but for completeness, I just want to include this at uh, in this episode. But if you decide not to listen to this because it's too much anxiety, thanks for getting this far and uh, hope you have a great day. But if you want to learn a little bit more about the, the SOAP process, I'll go over that uh, stuff here now. Okay, so on Match Monday, there's one of four possible scenarios that you can encounter the most ideal situation is to get an email that says, congratulations, you matched, you fully match. It means that you don't have to do anything anymore. And so you either match the categorical program or you match to intern year plus advance and you just don't have to do anything anymore and you're not eligible to SOAP. The next scenario is like you matched into an advanced position only. So then you have to go through the SOAP to secure a prelim spot. Third is if you use the prelim position as a backup, like you put on your main rank order list, then you could receive uh, a message that says you matched into your preliminary position only. So if you got this email, it means unfortunately you dropped pretty low on, on your rank list and you're eligible to soap for advanced programs. But again, year to year, the availability of advanced anesthesia programs and SOAP is, is very minimal, historically speaking, because for this previous cycle, there are only three anesthesia spots open in SOAP, and the year before that, there's zero spots. So unfortunately, might have to reapply it the next season if that's the case. But yeah, I guess it's it's better than the, the last possible outcome is that you do not match. And this is 
very unfortunate, but uh, it, it does mean you're available to soap and you get able to soap in anything that you, you want to. So if you're trying to go for another specialty, like internal medicine, family medicine, that kind of thing, those are generally the specialties that have more spots. Or if you still want to go the anesthesia route, you can try to apply for prelim programs and reapply to the following year. And on the show notes, I included a link to the video that explains SOAP from the NRMP, as well as a, a link to a Reddit post that does a really good description of the SOAP process. So I won't go into crazy detail about SOAP, but I'll just go over like the, the main points of it. So SOAP is basically the interview season on steroids. It fits everything in the past few months into those few days. So on Monday, you find out whether or not you match and you're, and if not, it gives you access to lists of unfilled programs. Then you kind of decide where to apply to uh, and like in which specialties. If you only match your advanced program, I believe you're able to contact the NRMP to, to find out which city it is. So it helps you plan where to apply for your prelim years. And same for couples. If one of you match, but the other's not able to try to figure out which city the, the partners matched in. So you try to plan accordingly. And unlike the, the original application, you can only send a total of 45 applications to 45 programs. And unfortunately, the timeline to send it is not very much. I believe it was about four hours from finding out whether you matched and having to submit it. So the turnaround time is is pretty quick. But this previous cycle, it was a crapshoot because the ERAS website it crashed. So try to expect that as well. And the super, super important thing, though, is if you're in SOAP and you submitted the application do not, under any circumstance, try to contact the, the program for an interview because that is a match violation and that can completely bar you from matching ever. And that can also bar your school from trying to match applicants. So when you send the applications, do not contact the, the programs unless you're contacted by the program first. And after the program contacts you, you're able to try to leverage your your resources and try to to make your case for the program but not before that's a match violation so this pre-cycle there's different rounds and historically there's only been three rounds of offers but for this previous one they added an extra one to so to make a total of four rounds and basically after the soap interviews are done the program gives out offers to applicants and they only give out as many offers as there are unfilled positions. So at a certain time, the they release the, the offers and then whoever gets the offer has about like two hours or something to accept or deny. And at the end of that time frame, it re-updates whatever available position is is there. And then it does the same thing until all four rounds are complete. So that's basically how the soap works. And I'm crossing my fingers for all of you. I really hope uh, you end up matching wherever you want. And I hope that hearing this stuff is just a backup. We're preparing for contingencies, but you never have to use it. 
So my my best of luck to you on that and best wishes because this process completely sucks in my opinion. So yeah, unfortunately at this point it is what it is, but yeah. Okay, so if you made it all the way to the end, holy cow, this was a very, very long episode. And I just want to thank you for not only listening to this episode, but um, if you listen to my other episodes back in October, I really do appreciate your support. I'm doing this for you guys because I want you to have the best chance at securing your your number one residency spot as possible. So yes, thank you. And I really do hope this is uh, helpful to you. And in the next few weeks, I'm going to try to go back to regular programming. So I still have my notes for the mechanical ventilation, pediatric anesthesia, and OB anesthesia. I just never typed it up and recorded the, the episode. So I'm going to do my best to to get that out to you guys so you have something to listen to. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for hanging in there and supporting the podcast. It means a lot to me. And yeah, I hope it helps you out in any way it helps you out. Okay. And lastly, as always, here's a joke for you. And it goes, want to hear a joke about construction? I'm still working on it. Uh, okay. All right. Thanks for listening. This is Scott, the fourth year medical student, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.